the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. show hasn't been funny in years an snl podcast i'm your host nick digilio i'm a podcaster comedy writer and performer graduate of second city and a second uh, city yeah graduate of second city and a saturday night live expert and historian each week we're going to look back at everything snl the best the worst the good the bad the classic the forgotten we'll talk about full seasons full casts behind the scenes stories episodes sketches SNL's historical significance, and much more. Sometimes I'll have guests, sometimes I won't, but with every episode, I'm going to prove that that tired cliche that you hear all the time, that show hasn't been funny in years, is absolutely wrong. And today, we are going to talk about one specific episode. It is Season 3, Episode 8, and it aired on December 17th, 1977. So it was the Christmas episode of Season 3. And the reason why we're going to talk about that is because it's a very interesting episode in that uh, it's, it's a one-time-only episode because it was hosted by Miskel Spillman. You know Miskel Spillman? No, you don't. Um, they had a contest back in 1977, and it was, uh, it was called Anyone Can Host. And it was uh, a one and only time that they ever did this where SNL said... Uh, we're going to have a contest to see that anybody in the country, anybody in the world could host SNL. So what they did was uh, they, they, they got on the air and they said uh, there were contest rules. Submit a single postcard. Remember when you could actually submit postcards when you actually would like mail things to people with a, you know, a self-addressed stomped, stamped envelope so that you could get things back? Well, this was way back in those days when you would mail postcards to get into contests. And they would pile up in a, uh, in a mail room somewhere. But anyway, the contest rules, they were real simple. It was submit a single postcard containing 25 words or less as to why you should be chosen to host Saturday Night Live. And they got uh, over 150,000 entrants. Um, and they narrowed it down to five. And one of them was Miskel Spillman. And her entry simply read, um, I need one more cheap thrill since my doctor told me I only have another 25 years left. She explained that she was, in fact, an 80-year-old grandmother and that she lived in New Orleans. Um, so there were five uh, finalists, and those five finalists uh, included regular people. And, in fact, at the time, the governor, the then governor of South Dakota, Richard Knapp, uh, was also one of, these, one of these five finalists. And on the November 19th broadcast, which would be episode six, they all came out and pled their case. Um, and so they would come out, uh, and the audience was there, and the five finalists came out, and they would stuff, say stuff like, uh, Hi, I'm Dave, I'm unemployed, and I'm from Oregon. Or, Hi, I'm Deb Blair, I'm the mother of three from Peoria. But Miskel Spillman came out and said, uh, I'm Miskel Spillman, I'm old. And the crowd went nuts. And she won. So Miskel Spillman uh, was the first and only winner 
of the Anyone Can Host contest. So she's an 80-year-old German immigrant from New Orleans, and she won. And so she did indeed host an entire episode, just a regular 80-year-old woman from New Orleans, (laughs) grandmother, hosted SNL. Um, And this was at the height of SNL's popularity before it blew through the rafters, meaning it was before Animal House came out and changed the trajectory of pretty much everybody, meaning that all the people that were on SNL would you know, get movie contracts and make big movies and become su- huge stars. In 1977, at this time, in the middle of season three, the show had hit its stride. Uh, the whole first season, the finding its legs, uh, you know, it being sort of the Chevy Chase show, that was all done. Chevy was gone for, you know, a full season and a half at that point. Uh, Bill Murray had already come in, and he had established himself. And by this point, the original Not Ready for Primetime players were at the height of their creativity. They were hip. They were the anti-social comedy gods of the moment. And it was at that point, it, there was nothing hipper, nothing cooler, and nothing better in comedy than Saturday Night Live during this time period, like late in 1977. And nobody was cooler on TV and anti-establishment, and badass, and comedy, and nobody was popular than the uh, not-ready-for-primetime players in late 1977. So to pull a stunt like this, to have a contest where the winner and who is going to host the show is an 80-year-old woman, was really uh, kind of crazy and weird and kind of fit in with the vibe and the style that was happening. And they had found their footing, but there was still a lot of weird stuff happening on the show. Uh, Mistel Spillman was the host. Elvis Costello was the musical guest that night on December 17th, 1977. And we're going to go through the episode, um, talk about it. Uh, The idea of having this contest to have anybody host, I can't imagine that even remotely happening now. Um, They've had, you know, one-time only uh, hosts in the past, uh, but they weren't just regular people, regular folks who sent in postcards. Uh, They were celebrities. Um, The one-time hosts sometimes were... um, Actors or actresses who either did a really terrible job or they were sports figures who, you know, you never know how that's going to go. When you have a popular sports figure or a pro athlete or somebody like that, you never, that's, that is, that's, that's, you know, you're rolling the dice on that point. It's either going to be a really great show or a really terrible show. You never know. Um, And then sometimes just like celebrities do terrible jobs on the show and they're never asked back. This uh, was the case where just this woman was 80 years old, uh, grandmother, and won the contest. So... Uh, it, it's, it, it was the Christmas episode, uh, December 17th, 1977. Um, and, uh, it was, it was interesting on a lot of reasons because at this point there, you know, like I said, it was, it was established and this show, this episode actually has some great stuff in it. There are some classic bits and some classic moments, uh, some legendary live television moments happened during this specific episode, this anyone can host winning episode. So let's go through it. So at the top of the show, let me just say that the show opened with this. This is the first thing you see. You see an image of, uh, with the NBC logo. Um, and uh, the joke is Don Pardo, obviously, the longtime uh, uh, fantastic uh, announcer for Saturday Night Live, the legendary Don Pardo, um, uh, says, you know, does a cold opening. Before the actual cold opening joke, there is this joke. So this is how the show opens. This is how it opens. How the Grinch Raped and Strangled Christmas will not be seen tonight so that NBC may present the following special program. Yeah, so that's how it opens. It opens with, um, it opens with, a, with a Grinch rape joke. 
That's that's how the that's how the Christmas episode opens, and you have to understand at this time, and I'll talk about him a little bit later on in the show because he makes an appearance. At this time, the head writer of Saturday Night Live was Michael O'Donohue, and Michael O'Donohue was the very first head writer of uh, SNL, um, uh, and he was uh, like sort of a punk rock comedy guy. Um, he and because he he makes an appearance in the show later in the in this episode. But I will do an entire, trust me, there will be an entire episode of That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years completely dedicated to Michael O'Donohue, who was a legendary anti-comedy, anti-socialist kind of dude um, who started out as a National Lampoon writer. He worked with Chevy Chase. He worked with John Belushi, all the people that he worked with at Lampoon. And he was brought in by Lauren, who also worked with him before, to be the head writer. And Michael O'Donohue was, was uh, anti, he was just anti-everything. Um, you know, he... He spray painted on the walls. He did all kinds of crazy shit while he was there. Um, and he would eventually become known as Mr. Mike on the show. He eventually would, would release a movie called Mr. Mike's Mondo Video. He was kind of the, um, the godfather of sick jokes and cringe comedy, absurd, anti-humor. He challenged the norm. He was like a punk rock comedy guy. Um, and, uh, and, and as the head writer... Of, of SNL for those first few years and for the first seasons, uh, stuff like, you know, the Grinch raping Christmas would end up <laughs> on the show because that's Michael O'Donohue. That's Mr. Mike. He was famously also known as the guy who would come on stage and, and do impressions of what it would be like if someone, you know, he would do, he couldn't do impressions, but his impressions were what would happen if this person, this famous person I'm, I'm about to, uh, do an impression of had needles plunged into their eyes and then he'd scream. And that's the kind of stuff that he did. And yeah, and, and Michael O'Donohue, you know, the godfather of punk, anti-comedy, anti-humor, he, his influence can be felt for many, many years. Just right off the top of my head, stuff like Mr. Show wouldn't exist without Michael O'Donohue. Tom Green stuff and Eric Andre stuff wouldn't exist. South Park, South Park would not exist without Michael O'Donohue's influence on culture and on comedy that sept into the world of comedy starting in, in, the, in 1975. He actually is the guy who spoke the very first words on the very first episode of Saturday Night Live. He and John Belushi were in the very first sketch, the Wolverine sketch, and he is Mr. Mike, Mike Michael O'Donoghue, is the very first guy. So obviously his influence is all over this episode. Um, as we go through it, you'll see some dark, twisted shit, and that's Michael O'Donoghue, head writer, who encouraged everybody to be as crazy and as, you know, anti-establishment um, as he was. Sometimes he went too far, uh, and we'll get into that when I do an entire episode dedicated to Michael O'Donoghue. But his uh, influence, his writing, his style can be felt throughout this entire episode as we go through this entire episode. Lots of Michael O'Donoghue can be felt, and lots of Michael O'Donoghue's sense of humor, which also was shared by people like Belushi and Aykroyd and, and uh, many of the other uh, people who were writing and performing. So, uh, yeah, and that's establishment, you know, a, a, gr a Grinch rape joke is the first joke in the show. So anyway, to get back to it, um, episode eight, season three continued with the cold open. And this features uh, Lorraine Newman and John Belushi. Uh, and they are at their lockers in the, uh, you know, in the dressing room talking about getting ready to do this show with the winner of the Anyone Can Host uh, contest. Um, and of course, uh, you know, no, at that point in time, uh, being anti-establishment uh, and the punk rocks of comedy, they also like drugs. So there's some, there's a lot of drug humor in the cold open. So here's Belushi and Lorraine Newman talking about how they're excited 
to be a part of a show that's going to be hosted by a regular old person. Well, I think it's pretty exciting having an 80-year-old grandmother host the show. But what if she forgets her lines? Oh, don't worry. She won't. Let me tell you something. You should be as together when you're 80 as Mrs. Spillman is. Don't worry. I plan to be dead by 30. <laughs> Hi, Buck. Hey, Buckaroo. Hey, How's it going? Okay, listen. Have uh, either of you seen Mrs. Spillman recently? Yeah, I left the dressing room about 20 minutes ago. Well, you know, I checked in on her, and she's lying on her back, looking at a bowl of fruit <laughs> with a radio turned on full blast. Well, you know, she's 80 years old. Maybe she's hard of hearing. No, no, that's not it. She's acting very strange. Well, she was a little nervous when I saw her, so I just told her a few things to loosen her up. You know, uh, that being nervous is natural, and how we're all a little nervous, too. I found out that she knows some people that I met down in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. Then we smoked a joint, and she calmed down. <laughs> right, so he smoked a joint with an 80-year-old woman. That's the joke. And obviously, pot humor and drug humor was a big thing at that time because, uh, well, quite frankly, everybody was doing it. Everybody was doing drugs during those, you know, those heady days of the late 70s when the show really first off, took off, and cocaine was everywhere and pot was everywhere. So, yes, drug humor was in pretty much every single episode of the first five years of the show. So, yes, and that was Buck Henry who came in. And um, it's interesting uh, also to note that uh, Belushi at that point jokes about how he will be dead by the time he's 30. He was dead by the time he was 33 in real life. So that's a little bit weird when you hear that back and go, oh, yeah, he died at 33, not 30. So he was close. He was real close in that joke. Um, so what were they going to do? They've got an 80-year-old grandmother. What is she going to do? Does she have comic timing? Is she able to do characters? No. Uh, so that's why Buck Henry is there. Buck Henry, as you probably know, was a, a multiple host of the show, hosted many times, and would pop up here and there whenever they needed him. Uh, he became a, a, a pretty much perennial staple in the first five years, in the establishing years of Saturday Night Live, and became, like Steve Martin, kind of an honorary, not ready for primetime player. He was a guy that they went to all the time. He was a terrific host, an incredible writer. I mean, the guy, you know, wrote uh, The Graduate. He, co-wrote and co-directed Heaven Can Wait. Buck Henry is a great, was a great comedic voice and a very funny performer and a, a staple in the early years of Saturday Night Live. So it was really smart for everybody else and Alan Lawrence to say, hey, let's bring Buck in and he can kind of be there as the all-star. If something goes wrong, we can always bring Buck in. Everybody, you know, the, the, the audience knows who he is. He knows the show. So we've got this 80-year-old woman who won a contest um, let's bring Buck in. So in addition to having Buck Henry there to kind of step in if something went wrong, um, which was the backup plan, uh, they also wrote around Miskel. Uh, Miskel is an 80-year-old grandma with no comedy you know, background or anything like that. So they wrote around her, much like they did whenever they had, if they had a terrible sports figure on, or early on they had guys like, like Norman Lear hosted, and Norman Lear was a great comedy writer, not a performer. There's a difference. Some people can write comedy and not perform it, and vice versa. Some people can do both, but not uh, Norman Lear. Hugh Hefner hosted. They had politicians host who had no business being there. And so what they would do is the writers would write around them. And that's exactly what they did with, with Miskel. And Miskel came in and did her thing. So during her opening monologue, um, which followed this cold open, they established the fact that Belushi got her high. So Buck Henry helps her come out for her monologue at the top of the show. And she's carrying the aforementioned bowl of fruit that she's been staring at. And during the whole, during the whole bit at the beginning, Buck is trying to take the, um, the, the, uh, the fruit from her but she's refusing it, and she's kind of looking around. And the joke is that Buck Henry is out there to help her 
do her monologue because she's so high because John Belushi smoked a joint with her. And this is the opening monologue with uh, Miskel Spillman and Buckeye. Um, a few weeks ago, if you'll remember, uh, there was a contest run called the Anyone Can Host the Saturday Night Show contest. There were many thousands of entries, 150,000 uh, roughly, and there were five finalists presented. Uh, I have the privilege of presenting a few weeks ago. And the final votes were tabulated by services provided by Ventura Associates. And tonight, by approximately a margin of 15,000 votes, I am honored and pleased to present the winner of the Anyone Can Host contest, <laughs> your hostess for tonight, Mrs. Miskel Spillman. I know that there are probably a number of things that uh, you want to say to the great American audience. Wow! <laughs> this is really weird. <laughs> There's so much happening, but it almost seems like everything's in slow motion. I mean, am I making sense? <laughs> or am I blowing it? <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell. The producer, a nice young man, told me to just flow with it and have a good time. But I didn't really know what he meant until Belushi visited me in my dressing room. <laughs> and the colors, wow! So that uh, established the whole thing. Uh, you get the joke. And uh, she's be she's really, really sweet, and she's little and old, and she's got glasses and a grandma dress on, and she's holding that bowl of fruit. And, um, you know, obviously the crowd was rooting for her. They were going nuts. The young, hip, probably half-drunk, high crowd had a great time with her, and they were rooting her on. Um, and, you know, Buck did a great job, you know, like establishing the joke and letting it go. And, uh, you know, she did it. She was just a charming, funny little old woman. And that was the joke. And that was going to be the joke that was repeated throughout a lot of things. Now, for the most part, she appeared in sketches, but kind of didn't. She was in either in the background of a sketch or she would be like kind of sitting next to someone and she'd have maybe three, four, five lines at the most in most sketches throughout the entire uh, show. So, again, they wrote around her. Um, but at this time, at this point, the show was already, like I said, established as the hippest comedy show on TV, and everybody was watching it. By this point, I was completely obsessed with Saturday Night Live at this point. Uh, halfway through season three, you know, I was completely obsessed. I, I, I adored all of the Not Ready for Primetime players, Belushi being my favorite. And they, at that point, were kicking ass, and they kicked a lot of ass on this episode. So as uh, we continue, we move on to an actually a, a, a commercial parody for a kind of a, 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 you know, a matchbox car, Hot Wheels kind of car racing set called uh, the Meat Wagon Action Set. This, again, was inspired by uh, some, of the, some of the stuff that they were doing. Dark humor, which you'll find a lot of in this episode. Uh, this was a, a commercial for uh, a race car set 
where um, you bring out the meat wagon to collect dead bodies when the cars crash. That's when you bring in the meat wagon. Meat wagon's power booster gives you what it takes to get there first. Put the meat wagon's actual scale rescue team and equipment to work. Will the driver make it? Get out your body bags, accident pry bar, and oxygen dispenser. Use the pry bar to pull the victim out. Get him onto the stretcher if he's still in one piece. You've cleaned up the scene and you're ready to move out. Your meat wagon's ready for the next wreck. Meat wagon action track set. Figures, accessories, batteries, power booster, friction flame control, fire extinguisher, cars, and track not included. All items sold separately. From me. So you'll notice that the toy company that actually manufactures meat wagon action set is Mainway. And that's Irwin Mainway, uh, who was the guy uh, played by Dan Aykroyd, uh, who Joan Face would uh, interview because he would make dangerous toys. So to have that being a connecting thing or a running gag, the Mainway Toy Company uh, making the, the, uh, the meat wagon action set. And the commercial is perfect. It's got kids in there playing with their cars and, you know, on the racetrack, the racetrack, the cars hit, they blow up, blood comes out, and then they bring out guys and cart off dead, little dead body characters. Um, it was very reminiscent of uh, the kind of stuff that was happening at that time. Uh, at that time, uh, Kentucky Fried Movie was a really huge anti-establishment comedy directed by um, John Landis, who would go on to direct uh, Animal House, and written by the Zucker Brothers and Jim Abrams, who would go on a few years later to create Airplane. So at that time, these really ripe, young, anti-establishment comedy minds were working. Uh, and uh, Kentucky Fried Movie would have a ton of stuff like Meat Wagon action set commercial parodies in there in the movie using in, in fact the same score the music score that action sort of funky 70s music score to accentuate uh, the toy product a lot of that's the, the same score the generic sort of score was used in Kentucky Fried Movie so that commercial parody that filmed commercial parody had a very f- Kentucky Fried Movie feel to it also very funny uh, and then the next bit it featured almost everybody from the Not Ready for Primetime players. Um, you know, Bill Murray and Gilda Radner are in this. Uh, Lorraine Newman is in it. Uh, John, Dan, uh, most of the major players are in this. And it is a, uh, a weird sort of Monty Python-esque sketch uh, called The American Date with the Self-Conscious Association. And it was about dating people who were acutely self-conscious And then it would go on to uh, talk about the really stupid people's amalgamation and the extremely obnoxious people's amalgamation. Um, And it was taking on, you know, uh, characteristic and behavioral stereotypes and putting it into like a PSA. Uh, So here's a little bit of uh, the American date with the self-conscious association, the acutely self-conscious. There's no hope for a happy New Year's for the acutely self-conscious. Not unless they're fortunate enough to meet someone so extremely obnoxious that he or she doesn't notice their acute self-consciousness. On my left here is Charlie Glatz, secretary treasurer of the Society for the Extremely Obnoxious. Hi, hi, hi. Glad to be here. Glad to be anywhere. Charlie's name chimes again. <laughs> As an extremely obnoxious person, I used to strike out with glassy broads New Year's after New Year's. Until one lucky day, I met this pathetic lame who was so acutely self-conscious, she didn't even notice how extremely obnoxious I was! <laughs> the self-conscious know who they are, but extremely obnoxious people don't. <laughs> or else they'd be self-conscious about it. Maybe you're unsure whether you're obnoxious enough to date the self-conscious. 
If so, why not drop by the league for the brutally tactless and find out for yourself? They'll tell you. Ah! <laughs> we're sorry we don't have anybody from the brutally tactless league here to speak for themselves, but they refused to be in this public service message because they said it was really stupid. <laughs> but we are fortunate enough to have with us a member of the really stupid people's amalgamation. <laughs> We don't have money for our own TV ad, so give us money and be nice to us and take us out for New Year's today. This has been a message from the astutely self-conscious, extremely obnoxious coalition in conjunction with the League for the Brutally Tactless and with a cameo by the really stupid people's amalgamation. So that final voiceover with Don Pardo pretty much uh, explains the entire sketch that you just watched for about four minutes. Uh, very funny. Um, again, all of the members, I think, except for Garrett Morris and Bill. Uh, no, Bill Murray's in that. Except for Garrett Morris and Jane Curtin are, are kind of in that sketch. And it was funny. Uh, it was the kind of stuff that they were doing on a regular basis. And John Belushi got to act obnoxious and Dan Aykroyd got to act really stupid. And so that was funny. Um and then the next sketch, because it was a Christmas uh, uh, story, the next sketch, Miskel was not in that sketch, by the way, your 80-year-old host. In this sketch, the next sketch, Jane Curtin and Miskel uh, are sitting in chairs by a Christmas tree, and they're about to tell you about the gift of the Magi. And basically, Jane Curtin sets up the sketch with Miskel sitting next to her saying one or two things. Uh, and then they do kind of a, a takeoff on the gift of the Magi, uh, you know, the classic gift of the Magi story. So um, in it, uh, at one point, John Belushi plays the husband of, of Gilda Radner, and he gives up his kidney to help her. Um, and, he, and in order to pay the bill, he sells his father's you know, watch. And, uh, and, and then obviously she buys him a chain for the watch, but he sold the watch and gave her her kidney. And it was a whole takeoff on the gift of the Magi thing. And then it doesn't end well for the couple. How did you get the money to buy this chain? Well, I, I sold my... Oh, you didn't, you... Yes, I, I sold my hairbrush. Yes. The bounce is gone, but it was worth it. You what? Is that all you think I'm worth, you cheap slut? <laughs> Boy, was I mistaken about you. I sell my watch, which has been in my family for a hundred years. I give you my kidney, and you sell a stupid hairbrush to buy me some junk jewelry, huh? Yeah, but wait a minute. The, the brush meant a lot to me. It had nylon bristles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nylon bristles, your face, you selfish I've been watching a ball game or reading at home. But damn. I had to give you my kidney and my watch. Yeah, but Robert, I've been sick. I didn't have time to shop. Oh, you didn't have time to shop. I had to time, huh? You ain't getting my kidney out of me. I got a scar as big as Europe. Well, this is the last time it's going to happen, Eric. He was right when he said, it's the gift, not the thought that counts. They don't call it the thought of the Magi. It's the gift. You're damn right. So that is that you're damn right. That's one of uh, like probably th- five words that, uh, that Miskel spoke. You'll notice um, <laughs> in that sketch, it was a completely different time. Uh, and, you know, again, uh, the word slut is thrown around a lot during those early days of Saturday Night Live. I mean, obviously, the point-counterpoint thing where 
uh, Dan Eckridge's counterpoint would always be, Jane, you ignorant slut, uh, which got a huge laugh. So calling uh, the cast, the female cast member sluts was really funny uh, at that time, <laughs> you know, supposedly. And slapping uh, the women uh, were funny because in that sketch, not only does Gilda get called a slut, but John Belushi slaps her across the face. And uh, that humor was obviously much more accepted back then, and they played a lot of that. You'll notice in this as we go on, uh, Lorraine Newman plays both a dipshit stripper and a hooker uh, uh, during this um, during this episode. Uh, Jane uh, gets called a bitch, which she get, got called a lot. She also got called a slut a lot uh, during it. And Gilda was called a slut uh, and slapped and then kind of abused a little bit later on by Santa Claus. So uh, this was a common thing. The three ladies on SNL... Uh, back in the 70s, it was part of the comedy was the guy. It was, a you know, even back then, it was kind of a boys club. And Belushi, um, you know, famously was not was not fond of female uh, comedians and didn't think they were as funny as guys. And that kind of humor seeped into a lot of the sketches on the show. That kind of male dominated sort of misogynistic kind of comedy was accepted and done for laughs. So slut, bitch, slaps, playing hookers, playing strippers, uh, even back then. And even more so back then, those kind of female, you know, stereotypes were encouraged and people laughed at it. So it was a different time. I laughed at it. I don't care. Well, again, you know, I was 12. So like, oh, he said slut. That's a dirty word. And again, back in those days, if you said bitch or slut, you were really pushing the envelope when it came to censorship and and FCC. And so, again, that was edgy comedy for SNL, calling someone a slut or slapping a, a woman that was edgy and, ooh, man, pushing the envelope. And it was, and it really was. Again, times have completely changed, and you look back at that and go, Ugh, and you cringe a little bit. And you do. When you go back and watch a lot of SNL, as I do all the time, sometimes I'll go back, and even as far back as like maybe 15 years ago, and look at one sketch and go, Ugh, because things have changed. I don't think any of this stuff, by the way, just on a personal note, I don't think any of this stuff should be edited. I don't think it should be censored. I don't think it should be cut. Um, you have to realize the time in which these things were written, the time in which they were performed, and what was happening in the world and what was accepted as comedy. And, you know, obviously standards have changed, for, and that's all for the better. But, you know, if, you know, if you watch these old things, just remember when they were written and when they were performed. And if a warning need be applied to the beginning of each of these episodes, let it be. But don't change anything. Don't censor anything. Don't cut anything. It's a, you know, it really does show you what was happening at that time. And that, uh, so the gift of the Magi was the next, it was the, that sketch. And then, uh, then you had your first visit from your musical guest. And the musical guest was Elvis Costello, and he came on and he performed, and and Miskel introduced him. Uh, she got to introduce Elvis Costello, and it was there was you know it was a good performance, and it was Elvis Costello, and he's great. Uh, his second performance, which we'll get to a little bit later as we go chronologically through the episode, um, became one of the historic live moments in the history of SNL, and one of the first times someone got banned from SNL. We'll get to that a little bit later. Update was next, and Weekend Update, this was, hosted, this was uh, anchored by Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin, and again, established that vibe by this point, three seasons in, Weekend Update, you know, which was for, which all Chevy Chase, he owned it, he said his name every week, and then slowly it would change, and Jane Curtin came in, and then Jane Curtin with Dan Aykroyd came in, and by this point, Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin had a really great uh, vibe going, they both co-anchored, and they were terrific. Uh, so they co-anchored and update was longer at that time. It's still kind of, you know, it's still the longest segment, the longest single long, you know, segment uh, on SNL, even to this day. But it was much longer and much more as everything was much more casually paced. Um, there were sketches in one sketch that's coming up um, 
uh, Sartsky and Hutch sketch where they would go from set to set and characters and actors would have to fill while the others were changing costumes and going to different sets. That doesn't happen as often anymore, or they do it much more quickly nowadays. But back in those days in the 70s, it seemed like it was forever for you know actors and performers to move from one set to another. <laughs> and it just, like, you watch it now, and the pacing is so languid and sort of like, well, pot-induced that you think, Jesus, get on it, man. Get to the next set. Do your costume change. I'm sitting here watching nothing. I'm watching Garrett Morris scratch his head for, you know, like a minute and a half. But anyway, um, so Weekend Update seemed to, to, to be a little bit more, was longer. Uh, and uh, so they had some reoccurring guests. And at this point, Bill Murray had kind of established his whole, hey, I'm Bill Murray, I'm the movie review guy. Hey, get out of here. That whole sort of hipster kind of goofy guy. Well, he came on and did a, uh, and did a bit. And he had a, this was when Bill Murray had the mustache. So here's, here's Bill Murray's sort of movie review segment on SNL. And now this update, week's update. movie review by Bill Murray. Bill? Thank you, Jane. Hey, how's it going out there, all my main men and women? Hey. I think tonight a review is in order for a film you'll probably see five or six times during the holidays. Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> what a supreme disappointment. George Seaton, you're a great director and an old pal, but I'm sorry you copped out. Now, this film trades on the question of the existence of Santa Claus, yet it fails to take a firm stand as to whether there is or is not a Santa. Sure, we see the post office delivering all the kids' letters to Mr. Kringle, but it's just a legal trick. We see his cane left behind in the new house, but are we sure it's his? And did he really give them the house? Or are the parents going to have to make all the payments? <laughs> give me a- so, so that's, the, that's the, uh, the general idea. And that's Bill, who had established the character, um, you know, the whole, like, hey, how's it going, baby, and all that stuff, the character that he would do, the, hey, my guys and gals, and, uh, and I mean that very much, you know, that whole, like, insincere, smarmy character. And he had kind of just established it, didn't hit its stride until, you know, later, probably the next, like, 78, uh, definitely, and into 79 is when he really started to do that character well. So it was interesting to see that. So that character showed up, and then another regular uh, classic character, Gilda Radner, showed up and did some Emily Latella on this uh, episode uh, during up. Now, what's all these headlines I keep seeing about the cyst landing in New York? If it's so why don't they come right out and tell us what it is instead of whispering sst about it? I hate secrets. They keep saying sst makes a lot of noise. Emily. No matter how loud you say sst, it still sounds like sst, which is very soft indeed. Emily. I believe that what, what? That's S-S-T, not sst. SST supersonic transport. It's a plane that travels faster than the speed of sound and crosses the Atlantic Ocean in two and a half hours. SST, not st. Oh, well, that's very different. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> It's no wonder we've kept you off update this year. Not only can't you hear, that's understandable. Obviously, you have a physical impairment. What? I said it's excusable that you cannot hear, but this SST thing is entirely different. You obviously were physically able to 
You have no business being on a news show, Emily, and you will never be invited back. Well, I understand every word you're saying, Miss Clayton. And I will never bother you again. See that you don't. Bitch. So, again, um... You know, Emily Latella, it would always end with her calling Jane Curtin a bitch. And it's still funny. It's funny. But again, it's a little, it's like, wow. And, and you have to understand, one more time, 1977, saying bitch on TV was a big deal. It was a big deal. All right, moving on. Uh, Sarsky and Hutch. Uh, Starsky and Hutch was probably the biggest, like, cop show on television in 1977. So they did a parody of it. But this one was, uh, you know, Starsky, or Sartsky in this case, played by John Belushi, was teamed up with uh, Dan Aykroyd, who played uh, an existential French philosopher. And that's basically the whole joke. And this sketch goes on forever. Here's a little establishing uh, bit of it. You called for us, Captain? You know, it's her day off. I'm sorry to have to do this to you boys, but something came up that only you can handle. Another pimp pushing junk to little children and runaways, huh? No, it's another freaked out Vietnam vet who's made himself into a human bomb and is threatening to blow up the Pacific Sunshine National Bank. He's threatening to destroy the bank. Destruction is then to be given a place among this man's appropriative mode of behavior. Hmm. I knew I could count on you, Jean-Paul. Uh, you're the best uh, philosopher, existential philosopher we have in the department. Let's break bread. Two cops working together as a team. The street is their office, their beat is their home. One's tough, the other's existential. Dan Aykroyd is Jean-Paul. John Belushi is Hutch. Together they're Sartsky and Hutch. Tonight's episode, No Exit. Record set up what they have on this character. He's known for his expertise in explosives. His name is Rusty Kramer. Here's his mugs. Um, ring a bell? Even when a man is wearing 10 pounds of high explosives, a man is still a man. C'est <laughs> l'absurde! Okay, so that's the setup. You get it. And, uh, and I'm sorry, I misspoke. Uh, um, Sartsky is obviously uh, Dan Aykroyd. And then Hutch is played by, uh, by Belushi. Uh, and the sketch goes on forever. And this is one of those sketches where they actually switch sets a couple of times. Um, and that's what I was talking about a little earlier. Because Garrett Morris, who, again, didn't do much on this episode. He, actually, he did have a bit on Weekend Update, um, uh, which was a short bit. But Garrett Morris kind of set up the sketch. He just kept, you know, uh, did basically set up stuff here. And, and they were changing sets. Like, they went to this bank robbery uh, set, which they talk about, a guy in explosives, and that was Bill Murray. And he was holding hostages. Buck Henry was in the sketch. And Miskel Spillman played a grandmother in the sketch who was at the bank, and she had two lines. So once again, your host, the 80-year-old winner of the contest, has two lines in the sketch. She didn't appear on Update either. So there's a long stretch where she was just, like, backstage hanging out, um, which is fine. 80-year-old grandmother, you're going to write around her. Uh, but this sketch goes on way too long, um, and, you know, it's a one-joke thing, and it's obviously this was written by Aykroyd. Um, and, uh, and Aykroyd gets to do the, you know, the, the accent. He gets to do the philosopher, um, and, you know, and, and Belushi gets to do the, you know, the, the, the comic relief of that. So uh, it's a bit that goes on too long, kind of funny, but a one-joke thing, and then we move on. Um, and the next bit is uh, Franken and Davis. Now, 
Al Franken and Tom Davis, they were writers on the show. Al Franken obviously would go on to become a successful politician um, and move on to being uh, getting kicked out of office or leaving office under weird circumstances in terms of uh, his, his sexual uh, uh, jokes and behavior. Um, so before all of that stuff happened, Franken and Davis did this thing called the Franken and Davis Show. Um, and uh, they, would, they were a comedy team, and they were mostly known as writers, uh, and then they became on-screen performers. And Franken and Davis was always one of my favorite sketches that they did. It was the Franken and Davis show, um, which appeared regularly. And in this one, Al Franken's parents show up, and he's going to give them a gift, and it doesn't go very well. So this is Al Franken and Tom Davis doing their Franken and Davis show, which was kind of like a... Uh, a parody of vaudeville with these two guys and uh this you know the, the sketch would always go bad something horrible would happen and then they would always come back at the end no matter what happened even if they killed they've killed each other on stage they've done terrible things to one another and at the end it's always waving good night everybody and they're doing like this great two-man sort of stage vaudeville type show and in this one al franken's parents come out and as usual it turns into a train wreck as the franken and davis show is uh, apt to do <laughs> Mom and Dad, I've uh, I brought an order each of you a Christmas present, an autographed picture of myself. Oh. And uh, you'll see later that the inscription is, to my biggest fans, love, Al. Oh, that's so nice of you, Alan. Thanks, Mom. Well, gee, Mom, Dad, how do you feel? Dad? Well, son, I'm very excited for you. Thank you, Dad. Mom, are you a little nervous? Oh, I, I haven't been so nervous since the time you were 12 years old and they called me up from school to say that you'd wet your pants. Damn it, Mom! I told you never to tell that story! Alan, don't yell at your mother. Oh, shut up! <laughs> Alan, what's gotten into you? Hey, listen, when will you two learn that I've grown up, okay? Just, just, just leave me alone, all right? What are you thinking of? What are you doing hey, out Tom, here? Listen, stay out of this. You're my business partner. Stay out of my personal life, okay? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very sorry this had to happen. Don't on apologize to them. Don't apologize to them, okay? All right, nuts. Throw away your career on national TV. I'll go back to say. Where did I go wrong, Joe? <laughs> oh, he's just got a swell head since he came to New York. That's all. You know, I knew it was a big mistake to bring you two out here. Come on, get off. Get out. Get off the stage. Come on, man. Come on. You too, Dad. Come on. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I, uh, I realize this, this makes me look bad. Uh, <laughs> But I guess, I guess that's show business. I don't know. Sorry. Good night, everybody. everybody. Good night. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how Franken and Davis' shows always went. What's interesting about this, again, this was, again, in the wheelhouse where everything was really big. They did, you know, uh, the Franken and Davis show showed up. Murray's update character, Emily Latella, a lot of recurring characters. Uh, catchphrases uh, were, were being established at that time. In the Gift of the Magi uh, thing, uh, 
uh, before Belushi slaps Gilda, he goes, but no, which became a catchphrase for him uh, when he would do that recurring character on Update. And Mr. Mike, as you'll see later, Mr. Mike, Michael, Michael O'Donoghue, Mr. Mike shows up uh, for another version of Mr. Mike's least loved bedtime stories. That comes up later. So a lot of established and well-known characters and a lot of you know, uh, recurring bits occurred on this show um, as Miskel Spellman uh, was kind of in the back. All right, the next one is uh, a TV, uh, a late-night TV cable show where E. Buzz Miller uh, presents art classics. And E. Buzz Miller um, is essentially a, um, a, a really slimy, sleazeball character uh, played by, uh, by Dan Aykroyd. And next to him is a dipshit stripper in a very revealing uh, dress played by Lorraine Newman. And in it, uh, he explains some of the classic artwork from previous centuries, but does it in a very sleazy sexual way. <laughs> So this is E. Buzz Miller's Art Classics. And now, Public Access Cable Television Channel D presents E. Buzz Miller's Art Classics. Good evening, welcome to Public Access Cable Channel D. This is Art Classics. I'm your host, E. Buzz Miller, and our lovely guest on my left here is Miss Christy Christina, and she's opening at the Coach and Pole Bar tomorrow night. But enough talk. Let's get right to tonight's art classics. Now, the first one here is called the Venus uh, of Urbizo. All right, I'm sorry, that's Urbino. And it was painted in 1538 by a guy in Venice. And this is for real. His name is spelled T-I-T-I-A-N. Titian, honest to God. He's a very famous, respected artist, and this is a bona fide art treasure. And I don't think anybody could disagree that this is a really nice painting of a broad on a couch. <laughs> How about you, Christy? You're an artist. Well, I'm an artist and an entertainer. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think she's very heavy. Well, of course, back then, that's the way they liked them, you know. Oh. Okay. Here's another one painted by the same guy, Titian. He painted these brads in 1555, so it's a classic. As you can see, it was a master of light, color, and shapes. And uh, we blew up this uh, picture here for a little more detail. What do I see there, Christy? I see something there. Do you see something there? Yes, I do. Right? Oh, right. <laughs> he didn't leave a thing out, did he? Okay, move on. Yeah. So that's that. Now, as a 12 year old, I was giggling like a maniac during that because it was all. It, oh, my God. It was dirty and it was funny. And I still I still think it's funny. Uh, Ackroyd was great at playing playing those sleazy characters. E. e Buzz Miller. That whole thing is very, very funny. Um, and, you know, obviously, Erwin Mainway, the character they played, uh, you know, with Jane, Jane Curtin, you know, pl- making the dangerous toys. He had a great way and he had the mustache at that time. So he looked he was smoking cigarettes, very sleazy. And uh, Lorraine was, you know, reduced to doing the giggling, but she was hilarious in the sketch and had great comic timing. And uh, all of her lines were very beautifully delivered. And it was funny. And the sketch was naughty. And I was 12, and I thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I, as watching it, I still think it's funny. Um, you know, it, again, you watch it now, you go, ooh, that's not as politically correct as we like it nowadays. But I don't give a shit. It's very funny. And the character is funny, and the idea is funny. It's this sleazy scumbag with a stripper next to him talking about, you know, art from the Renaissance or whenever and pointing at breasts, you know, naked breasts. Funny stuff. I don't care. So that was happening. That, that actually was, was very funny. Again, Miska was, Miska was not in that. Uh, and then we have the Home for the Holidays college old girlfriend sketch. And Miska actually has a big part in this. 
Uh, Dan uh, Aykroyd and uh, Jane Curtin play John Belushi's parents, <laughs> if you can believe that. John Belushi plays a kid who's coming home from college and bringing his girlfriend with them. And the joke is that the girlfriend is Miskel, who is an 80-year-old woman. And that's the joke, and that is kind of the only joke. It's the holiday time. He's the college kid, comes home, and he's got an 80-year-old girlfriend. And uh, this is kind of what happens. I understand you're an upperclassman at the university. That's right. And you're majoring in theater. Yes, but I'm also going to teach. Oh, so you'll have something to fall back back on. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Now, I suppose that you think that Jeff's father and I are a little bit old-fashioned. Oh, that's okay. I'm a bit old-fashioned myself. Sharon, have you ever been in love before? Yes, twice. Well, you know... As a mother speaking, I'm only looking out for Jeff. He's a very sensitive boy, and I just don't want him to get hurt. I understand. Oh, Sharon, I think you and I are going to get along just fine. <laughs> well, Jeffy and I came to a decision. <clears throat> I give in. You two lovebirds can stay upstairs. I'm just glad my own mother isn't alive to see it. <laughs> okay, everybody, dinner will be ready in about uh, half an hour. Oh. Okay, Jeff, let's go upstairs. 30 minutes? Uh, Mom, Dad, that's okay? Sure. Okay, let's bolt. <laughs> so, uh, obviously, the joke is, oh, she's 80, let's go upstairs and screw. Um, and uh, Miskell did a fine job with that. She, you know, she was struggling a little bit with the, with the cue cards where, uh, as you can hear, Jane helped her out. Jane got her back on. You know, back online, uh, where she fed her the line, something to fall back on. But she did fine. You know, an 80-year-old woman from New Orleans, uh, she did fine. And the joke was, uh, she's old and John Belushi isn't, and they're going to have sex. And it was fine, and, and, and Miskel did okay. Uh, the next, another sketch that was not Miskel, was a, a visit to Santa. Uh, and this, I want to say, this was 1977, so this was like, I don't know, what, three decades before uh, Bad Santa? So this is uh, Bill Murray as a department store Santa and Gilda Radner as a little girl requesting some, uh, some stuff from Santa, who happens to be a drunk deviant. Could I please have a set of pears? They don't cost very much and they're very, very tiny and sometimes they're even free. Well, that's not a very big request for Christmas. And since that's all you want, you can't have it! Ah! Santa's really getting off on this! Ah! Well, there is something... No, honey, there is something I do want to give you. What's that? Santa's trap door again! I love it! <laughs> Santa's really getting it off! Mr. Santa! Oh. What's this, Mr. Oh. Santa? Lucy's for the brothers that aren't here. Is that mm. for when you're thirsty? Yes, that's right, you little brat. Santa has to stay warm because he has to fly back to the North Pole every single day. Now, if you be a good girl, keep your trap shut and don't tell Mommy about Santa's little bottle. I'll bring you everything you want. Now, here's, here's a candy cane for you, my dear. Oh, thank you, Mr. Santa. You're this welcome. is the nicest top we ever had. <laughs> is oh, your... Mr. Santa, look, there's something on your beard right here. Where? Yeah. <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, um, this is a drunk Santa, and which hasn't really been done before. And uh, that was Bill Murray and Gilda Radner, who at the time were really close, and uh, they played really beautifully together, and it was very, very funny. She played the girl, the young girl, the, the, you know, the, 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 the little girl, which she'd done a million times, and he kind of did a variation of the Carl Spenkler uh, thing. 
uh, but he was drunk Santa. Very funny bit. Again, Miskel, nowhere to be found because she had that big scene before where she was the college girlfriend of, uh, of John Belushi. And then we come to another scene that does not include Miskel, uh, your host. And this is sort of the, the crazy, sort of legendary scene. Again, I bring up Michael O'Donohue, the darkest, uh, blackest comedy guy you can find. His character was Mr. Mike, and he had done these things called Mr. Mike's Least Loved Bedtime Stories, um, where he told these bedtime stories that were dark and mean and mean-spirited, and this is no exception. Lorraine Newman plays a woman who wanders into a bar. He's the bartender, and she's drunk and sad. And in order to, 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 to get a drink, he makes her sing the aria from uh, Madam Butterfly. And it is sadistic and weird and uh, Mr. Mike all over it. And while he's making her a drink while she sings that aria from Madam Butterfly, the story of the drink um, of the soiled kimono, the drink that he's making, shows up on screen, and then there's a lesson to be learned afterwards. And uh, this is, God, this is Michael O'Donoghue as Mr. Mike being cruel and dark and funny and weird, and Lorraine Newman uh, in the scene with him. I think you're going to need it. Okay. Now will you tell me at least love bedtime tale, please? You promised. Well, I'm afraid not, Dollface. But why? Because you sang lousy, that's why. Because you don't deserve a least love bedtime tale. Oh, Mr. Mike, you're so cruel. Well, sometimes you, you have to be cruel, Lorraine. In order to be kind, Mr. Mike? No, and in order to be even crueler now, scram. Put an egg in your shoe and beat it. It's closing time. So, yeah. Yeah. In order to be kind, Mr. Mike, now, in order to be even crueler, now scram. Uh, that pretty much sums up Mr. Mike. And uh, Mr. Mr. Mike's least loved bedtime stories were dark and twisted, and that was as dark and twisted as it gets. Uh, and that was one of the final sketches of the night. And then, uh, then the, one of the historic moments in SNL history happened. Uh, Miskel Spillman, again, did not introduce the musical guest the second time. Uh, Don Pardo did. And uh, let's just listen to this, and I'll tell you what happened after this happened on live television. Elvis Costello. Once again, here's Elvis Costello. Calling Mr. Ozzel with the swastika tattoo The girls are big on some waving I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. Radio, radio. Yeah, so that, okay, it may seem like nothing now, but that got Elvis Costello a lifetime ban from SNL, which was lifted uh, about 10 years later. Uh, I think it was 1989 or 1990, something like that, 10, 12 years later, something like that. He got that the ban was lifted a decade later, but it was a lifelong ban. And the reason why is because you never, and I've mentioned this before on, on the podcast, you never do anything that Lauren doesn't know about. You never deviate from the plan. You don't do something on your own. You don't improvise or screw around on stage uh, unless something wrong happens and you have to fix it. Um, if you do something as big as actually changing the song that you were supposed to play, 
that you played in dress rehearsal. That's it. You're done. And at that moment, Elvis Costello, for some reason, said he didn't want to play less than zero. Um, I'm going to play Radio Radio. Um, and he did it as a rebel because he wanted to play Radio Radio. And for some reason, I can't remember what the reason was exactly. But the reason was, no, don't play le- the uh, Radio Radio. Play less than zero. And he said, okay, but then stopped on live television and switched to Radio Radio. And it was a dangerous moment. It was a live TV moment. Nobody really knew what was happening. And then afterwards, we found out that, you, you know, they didn't want him to play Radio Radio. And he played it instead. And he said, screw you, Lorne. I'm playing what I want to play. And he did it on live television. And it became one of the landmark moments uh, on live SNL, and he became the first guy to be banned from SNL for life. And again, that ban was lifted about 10, 12 years later. But anyway, that was captured. That was that night. That was the night of anyone can host SNL. A legendary moment like that happened, and recurring characters came back, and Mr. Mike, and Al Franken, and Tom Davis, and all of these characters, and all of these sketches that some of them were very memorable that we remember now, with characters that we love now. So this, this, this whole episode, um, episode uh, eight from, from season three, the Christmas episode of 77, with an 80-year-old inexperienced grandmother hosting, actually had some classic moments and is a solid episode. Here are the good nights when Miskel Spillman, the 80-year-old grandmother, the winner of the contest, uh, got to say good night to everybody. I want to thank everyone in the world for voting for me. I've had the most wonderful time I ever had in my life. Everyone is so wonderful. I wanted my time. I want to thank my granddaughter, especially Janine Baker. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Yeah, so that's the good nights, and uh, and it was lovely. And you know, uh, the young girl came up and kissed her, and they hugged. And she was wearing a little elf outfit with a Santa hat on. Uh, Miska, uh, Miska uh, did, and she did a fine job, man. Uh, and the the writers did a good job. They wrote around her when they did include her, include her in it. They gave her stuff that she could handle, and they wrote jokes around her that were hip to what was happening. They did the drug humor, they did the dark humor. Uh, when she wasn't in sketches, they went balls out. You know, Michael O'Donohue-driven, dark, crazy stuff. Had recurring characters, had recurring bits that worked, but at that point were established. And at that show, at that point, the show was kind of uh, gold. It was foolproof. And it was a solid episode. And they never did Anyone Can Host again. They never did that contest again. Uh, and uh, she held the record for oldest host. Um, and uh, she, she, uh, she actually... Uh, Two weeks later, though, Ruth Gordon hosted um, in uh, January of 1977, um, and then uh, then it was broken in, in 19. Or I'm sorry, in 2010, when Betty White hosted. And Betty White was 88. So for a little while, Miskel Spillman was the oldest host in the history of SNL. Uh, Ruth Gordon kind of uh, challenged it, but then that whole thing was broken when Betty White was 88 when she hosted. Uh, and Miskel Spillman will go on to live another 15 years. So she died when she was 95 years old, and uh, she lived a, a quiet, wonderful life. People remembered her from it. She was recognized and things like that. And she continued to watch SNL, and uh, she was a huge, huge fan of Dana Carvey, and especially the church lady. So 
Miskel Spillman was the first and only winner of Anyone Can Host uh, SNL. And it's a memorable episode. It's out there somewhere. I think you can find it on Peacock. It's worth a look. There's a lot of classic stuff, a lot of stuff that, you know, was dated, obviously, because it was 1977. But, you know, you watch that episode and you go, yes, yes, I remember how crazy and edgy and dark and weird SNL was and how popular and how badass and what superstars the not ready for primetime players were with their recurring characters and their great stuff. So uh, a lot of stuff that represented what was great about SNL is in this episode, and it's definitely worth a look. So Miskel Spillman, Elvis Costello, Season 3, Episode 8, December 17th, 1977. Uh, And uh, they never did the Anyone Can Host show uh, again. So (laughs) there you go. Hey, uh, if you want to leave a voicemail with suggestions, 773-417-6948. Email me, nickdpodcast at gmail.com with your thoughts, your feedback. My thanks to uh, Ed and everybody at Radio Misfits and to Jason Skaggs for composing and performing the opening theme and this great closing theme. And we'll see you next time on That Show Hasn't Been Funny in Years, an SNL podcast. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>